Welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. And last week, we spoke with NCVBA member Ann Oliverius, who is now an attorney in London, but was a distinguished attorney here in the States. While Anne was at Yale, she was sexually assaulted by a man named Calvin Hirsch, and we examined how she managed to find parallel justice. I want to jump right back into that conversation. Anne, welcome back. Thank you for joining us again. When we left off, we had talked about a website that you were starting to name perpetrators of sexual crimes, and, and we left you off when you were discussing doxing and swatting. Can you explain how this website stops that and what some of the concerns are there. You, you don't get away with that. That we put up a website. I'm looking for insurance carriers who will actually um, make sure I can buy insurance policies. So if women, men are sued for naming their rapist, then there's an insurance policy to cover those lawsuits. We'll vet the cases as much as we can to try to make sure there's no revenge issues here or something or somebody's not telling the truth. But of course, in my experience, you know, 99% of people who say they've been raped or strangled and raped, they're telling the truth. Women don't, and men don't make up these stories generally. It's a very rare thing to have these stories made up. So because of Cal Hirsch and because of the lack of being able to do anything, I'm making sure that what he's done is put to good ends, put this community website up, and I hope that it will be the spur to get laws on the books so that people like me, like you know, hundreds of thousands of others, millions of others can actually bring lawsuits against these people who have hurt them. That's what I'm working hard to have done. I mean, I think your story resonates with, with so many women, so many professional women who were raped or sexually assaulted in college, in high school, and you just push it down. You don't talk about it because you have a million other things to deal with, a million other things to do, and you don't want the stigma. And society spent a long time telling us that we weren't raped. No. What advice would you have for, for men and women who have not had the opportunity to pursue their abuser in the way that you have? Um, how, how would you, what guidance would you give them to find closure and, and some measure of healing? Sure. Well, 
for those of us who have been raped, strangled and raped, beaten up and raped, as, as Cal did to me, I mean, certainly, I think it's really important to get therapy. And there are now really good therapists around the world who specialize in these acts, you know, this kind of therapy. Of course, that's really important. And I think talking about the event for most people is pretty good, not for everyone, but talking about it, you know, what has surprised me is that you know, we represent a lot of very powerful women in government, in the world, celebrities, um, people out there fighting the good fight, lawyers, doctors. And it is very rare when a woman has not been sexually trespassed against, in my experience. And so, you know, you hear really sad stories and, you know, I mean, I just did some work today. Uh, in India, there's a law that's up for review on marital rape. And I talked to the BBC World Service about this. And, you know, as I said, this is the first time now, I mean, it's the notion that men own women came from common law. It was part of coverture, of course, when we were born. You know, I was the property of my father still when I was born, and I'm going to be 67 soon. And then I became the property of my husband, Things started to change, of course, but that I might own sexual agent, still fairly interesting concept for a lot of women. We may think that we are our own sexual agents. And, you know, women at university and men at university say, well, I could sleep with whoever I want to. It's up to me. I'm an independent agent. But the fact is that we don't get a lot of education about pleasure in sex, particularly women. So, Anne, I've got to ask. How does this lack of education harm women? How do you see this played out today, even in modern times? So when you deal with sexual crime, sexual trespass, you know, you're dealing with a group of younger generation who also think that maybe that's okay. You know, you have, we had a case once in a high school in the States where almost every single senior girl had herpes because they'd all been giving oral sex to the boys in their class. And it had gone around. And when I said to each of the girls, did any of the men give you oral sex? Was it ever reciprocal? And they would just look at me like, what? Huh? Uh, was I supposed to ask for that? Or did oh, they yes. tell you they had herpes? <laughs> did they add <laughs> well, a minimum? Yeah, I mean, they. So um, it, it, the world is changing. It hasn't changed fast enough. And we don't, these lawyers, have tools to use the book person, man or woman, is raped at the age of majority until they're 110. There's very little you can do. I think you can name them online, which is what we're going to set up this community website. Al Hirsch will be the leading story, but there are so many stories. We're going to vet them carefully and try to encourage people to you know, tell their stories, to face into those things, and then perhaps to try to get justice wherever we can. In the States, still here. You know, you're bringing a sexual assault case if you say you've been raped to the London police, you know, 98% of the time, nothing will happen. And if you go to trial, you know, half of those, the remaining 2% perhaps win. It's just not considered, you know, wrong. And so it, 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 gets, it gets passed. Which is you know, why women don't, don't report. Which is why yeah. women do not report. That's why we need a civil justice system. We need to get civil justice and of course, the currency of civil justice is money. We have to get the perpetrators to pay, and we have to publicly name them. If they're publicly named, then they have to deal being named and changed. This is what they've done. 
Well, and I think you make an excellent point. The criminal justice, that's why we do the show. And that's why we call it parallel justice. It's when there's clearly been a crime committed um, and the tool we have when the criminal justice system fails right now, the preferred tool, the best tool is the civil justice system. But there are other ways to find closure and victims need that. I want to call attention to your site. Um, mcolaw.com because your story is on there and I read through it quite detailed and I want to encourage so we will drop that site into the show notes so our listeners can check them out and I encourage them to do it one of the things that caught my attention was the time you went at Yale went to Yale it was really an interesting time of transition which you talked about a little bit but you did some incredible work at Yale around women's rights could you talk about some of that? Oh, sure. You know, when I went up to Yale, women had just been admitted shortly in that period. We didn't, there weren't a lot of us. There were 12 residential colleges at the time, dormitories, essentially. And the Yale administrators decided to take the women who came up and divide us by 12. So there were just a few in each college, as opposed to maybe having three or four colleges with a good number of women, which would have been a far wiser, I think, approach for the women. It became then the men who weren't successful, you know, the sad ones who had to go to Vassar still. You know, you're supposed to get that sorted out on your home campus at Yale. So it became a time at Yale where, I mean, there was certainly a lot of freedom. It was a time where, you know, birth control became legal in 1969 for married couples in the state of Connecticut. Roe v. Wade happened in 73. I remember sitting at the Yale campus in a cocktail party the day that Roe v. Wade was decided. And I said, again, rather naively, well, this is you know, a really significant day for men and women in this country and for parents and people who want to have children. And this older white male faculty member looked at me and said, sweetheart, no Yale woman has ever been denied an abortion. And I stood there, Renee, and I thought, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. That is it, isn't he telling me that Yale's up to something that's illegal, you know, what, what's going on with that? It was really quite a, a startling moment for me. And I began to realize that, okay, there's a law for some and law for others, and okay, uh, it was different. So Yale was still Yale. It had a lot of pictures of big, important white men on the walls. The chairs were large. Everything was geared to men. Kingman Brewster, who ran Yale at the time, publicly announced that Yale dedicated to educating a thousand male leaders every year. When it took women, it was in addition to, so you took a couple of hundred on top, but of course that just crowded all the dormitories. It made life very hard in that respect. It wasn't that, you know, kind of more gentle environment that we used to have. After um, a few years, and yet to the end, the Yale Corporation approached me and asked me to do a report on the status of women at Yale. 10 years out by that time or coming up to it. And so I canvassed uh, a lot of people, did a bunch of questionnaires, and tried to write a sort of um, jokey, you know, fun thing was they thought at first. But I kept hearing stories about sexual harassment, which was not named at the time. Catherine McKinnon really made this a household name, as I made date rape a household name. And so um, I then went to Yale and said, look, there's a problem with a lot of undergraduates and graduate students uh, and men who are being sexually harassed by various faculty. And uh, the Sam Chauncey, 
who was the secretary of the university at the time to Kim and Brewster, denied it. And he said, you know, Ann, um, if I'm going to believe you, then um, give me a list of the names of the professors who you think are doing this. So I went back to this great group that I had, and we had a lot of people telling us, you know, these stories. And they agreed to give the names of the men. I went back and gave them to Sam Chauncey. And then he said, well, um, I'm going to need to have the names of the women. You don't have to hook them up with allegations, but just the women who are making these allegations, because we have to check them out. We can't do something that's not honest. And I really thought that, you know, he was on side, that Yale, of course, would want to be on side for this. What good person would not want to be? So I went back to the group and the women agreed to put their names down. And I took them back and he said, well, uh, it's gotten more complicated. The women are going to have to actually say who sexually harassed them, who, and many of them have been raped by professors. So I went back again, and ultimately, women did all that. And the men said, this is who raped us on the faculty. And so I waited um, one day to speak to Sam Chauncey about this, just after we'd done all this, just near my graduation. And as I was standing in his fabulously luxurious, gorgeous office, um, his open you know, scheduling book was there, like, you know, I'm an important man. And I was standing there, and I saw there was all this eraser, rubber eraser stuff on the page. So I looked down, and I could see that my meeting that day had been erased. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. And so then I turned back to the other days. I had my daytime calendar and checked, and they'd all been erased. And I thought, oh, that's, uh, wow, what's that about? So in any event, shortly afterwards, uh, Sam canceled the meeting that day. And shortly afterwards, he called me and said, look, Keith Bryan, who was the head of the band and someone who had given allegations that he had raped two minors at a New Jersey high school previously, um, is going to come after you and sue you. And I said, sue me for what? And he said, he was going to bring a libel case. Well, I had no idea. I hadn't gone to get law school yet. All of a sudden, it seemed pretty terrible. I said, well, Sam, isn't Yale going to defend me on this? You know, I thought I was doing Yale's work with him. He said, no, no, we're against you. We're going to represent the professors who've been accused of rape and sexual harassment. How could that possibly be? He said, because that's how life is in. So that's how I went down to the New Haven Law Collective and met with Ann Simon and Kent Harvey, said I need help. And we worked together to design a case, the first case, in, you know, on in education defining sexual harassment moment. You know, we brought the Alexander V. Yale suit, we filed it, and those days I, mean, I got excrement in the post, I've got death letters, these things were used to cut out letters of the alphabet and paste them on, you know, go back to the 1970s. I mean, letters, you know, telling me they're going to cut my labia and, and cut my nipples off. And I remember reading one of these thinking, all I'm trying to do is get Yale to try to find out, because all we asked for in the lawsuit was as you know, a, a, to get a system so that if people had suffered any of these things, there was some place central to go at Yale to make the complaint. And then Yale would decide what to do with it. So we were a really respectful group of people. Not trying, trying to take anybody down. We're looking for money. We right. were looking to get a database because the way Yale was decentralized with these residential colleges, you could have a serial sexual predator. We had identified a number of them, faculty members, who you know, could go after people in different colleges. So you wouldn't know that individual college would know, but the university wouldn't be aware of the depth of the problem. That's all we asked for. That was it. The uh, general counsel of Yale at the time, Jose Cabrales, 
you know, Jose said, you know, on behalf of Yale, this is a bunch of exaggerations, lies, false suit, false claims. It was nothing. How ridiculous, how outrageous of us to file this case. Well, that case created good law. We lost the case. Yale laid, laid. So those of us who graduated no longer had standing. One person stayed in, a black woman, and, you know, the judge didn't find her credible. Um, she seemed pretty credible to me, but a black woman against a white man, Mr. Duvall, who's now out in Minnesota, I mean, you know, he's never had anything come up against him. In fact, you know, our office is writing a piece right now on the defendants in Alexander VL, what's happened to them. So it has, you know, we're still haven't gotten justice in that sense, but we have created a system that has benefited an awful lot of people. And I certainly say this as a as a solicitor practicing in the UK, I practice worldwide as an international lawyer, and in the States as a lawyer licensed in a number of American jurisdictions, we've really created a whole new conversation. We hope to continue that conversation. Has Yale addressed any of this in the in the aftermath? Uh, well, you know, life is a curious thing. Um, I've had a whole bunch of kids. Um, my three biological children have all gone to Yale. And, you know, as I said to you, I came from not a very resourced place. I happened to business school. So, you know, we've got a, a lot of Yale credentials. And then my three biological children also went to Yale. And, you know, I just had assumed things are getting better. Um, I was still hopeful then. But my uh, two girls who went there, and the two girls at a time when there was a complaint filed with OCR, Office of Civil Rights, and a lot of noise about this frat culture where, you know, it's clear that there's a lot of non-consensual sexual activity at these frat buildings that are all adjacent to campus. And what does Yale do about it? Harvard, of course, has taken a very strong, positive stand to be applauded. Princeton has also taken a very positive, strong stand. But Yale just doesn't seem to be able to get its act together. And so my daughters helped to organize this complaint to OCR. And it was about the frat boys who went to the Women's Center and said, you know, I, um, no means yes, yes means anal. And they kept chanting this thing over and over and over. And then there were you know, lambasted for this and criticized. And then they did it again another night and came back and said, you know, no means yes, yes means anal. And a lot of the girls found it really threatening to hear, hear this. So Yale was ultimately um, charged with a penalty of some money. I think I can't remember the exact number, maybe just over 100,000 or something in that range. And then they appealed it and they actually appealed it. They got it down a bit lower. But it taught me that until the educational institutions who now have deep, deep layers of administrators who get paid very, very well, not like when I was at Yale. And they've got college presidents that may earn, you know, a million plus. In this world, we do not assign universities who allow the problem of rape to really continue and the binge drinking that goes with it. If they don't come on side on behalf of the law, then they should be charged money. The university should be charged money. And the individual administrators should be charged money. The administrators in charge of Title IX, who has a whole bunch of people raped, and if they could have prevented it, there's nothing that should be charged. Absolutely, because we've seen time and time again, that is the only way to get, if you cannot appeal to somebody's moral code, that is how you have to appeal to them. 
unfortunately. Got to go after the money. That will get people to change their side. And I think if you actually start assigning real monetary charges, you can find the most activist, progressive, protective environments for students, men and women, to go to school. They'd be safe. But if you're not putting those people to run those places, I notice that it's their responsibility. And if they don't do it, which most of them are not doing a good job right now, okay, then we need to do something about that. And they have to pay some money. It'll change. I'm sure it'll change. We can solve this problem really easily. I hope President Biden gets on top of this. It's not a hard problem to solve. What about the money? This has been just a tremendous conversation. And I really want to encourage our listeners to check out the show notes. We are going to try to put all of the sites that Anne mentioned into the show notes, but I also want to give Anne an opportunity to, to give our listeners any last thoughts, um, especially for women who, who are now professional women and men who have been raped, um, who have, who have been outside of that for a few decades and are just now realizing any last words of advice for them? Yes, I, I think find your voice. You know, um, it's interesting when I first, I didn't tell my story for years because I had no legal hook. I run a law firm and as a lawyer, what you learn, what I've learned is that it's never about me. It's always about the client, always about the client. So I don't share personal stories. You know, I'll ask them, how are your kids or how's life or, what do you think of Boris Johnson? Okay, all sorts of that kind of stuff, but it's never me. I don't offer my opinions. I don't speak about me, never. So there was no reason to tell the story because I had nothing I could do about it whatsoever. And when I had reached out to Cal Hirsch, he was just insulting in response and, and just really tried to be humiliating and degrading in response. And it's all on the website to read what his actual responses are. So I think, you know, when I then went public, I've had a number of people in my office come in and say, hey, you know, that was really gutsy to do. We're really proud of you. And I started saying, stop, stop. There's nothing gutsy about this. There's nothing to be proud of me for. This is simply something that happened. I'm telling the story. And it's happened to a lot of other people in our law firm, you know, worldwide. And there's a sense, even amongst those of us here, that somehow it's a shameful thing and you've shared it. And that's why you're so courageous. There's nothing shameful about it. And the fact even that I suffered them two, maybe three more times, I think you just need to tell that stuff. And now I hear other women's stories, it, it happens. And there are a whole bunch of people who have been raped by different men at different times in their lives. It's not like a guarantee, oh, you know, I got the COVID, I got raped, it's not going to happen again. It's nothing like that. You lead a life and you try to do what's best. And still, you know, a lot of perpetrators, it's a power act, they think they can get away with it, it makes them think it's a good thing to do. I don't think people are going to feel the shame. There's nothing to be shameful about. Stand up, be counted, use your voice, you'll help others. We'll give other people who've been harmed the strength to tell their stories. And through the compilation of stories, well, life will change. That was possibly the most profound last thought we had. So, so thank you for that. And thank you for the conversation and your courage in sharing your story and encouraging so many men and women who have been victims to do so. That is all the time we have for today. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in again. And I encourage you once again to please check out the show notes for all of the information we are going to pack into this episode. And please tune in next week. 
Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Watford. Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.